Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. My guest today is a good friend of mine. You know him already. He's returning. It's Dan Sugarman from Ice Nine Kills. I just collaborated with him. He just played a solo on a cover that my band put out of The Philosopher by Death. And his solo is just unbelievable. I already knew that Dan was a great player, but I guess it really it really struck me just how creative he is and how dominating his tone and his phrasing is. The guy is unbelievable, and he always has a ton of wisdom about just how to get better at guitar, I guess, in a holistic sense. Anyhow, I'll stop talking. I introduce you or reintroduce you, Dan Sugarman. Here goes. Dan Sugarman, welcome back to the Riff Hard Podcast, and Opus, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast for the first time. She's a little bit more stoked than I am to be here, but thanks for having me again. This is my second favorite thing to do in the world other than listening to her bark. Is podcast with me or? You are number two after listening to her bark. Okay. This whole situation is number one, all of this. I'll take it. Let's get into it. Take it away, baby. The solo on The Philosopher. Yes. This is not going to be a shameless doth episode or anything, but we have to talk about it because it just came out. And it's fucking killing. Yeah, and like it is. you really blew my mind with that solo. So for anyone who doesn't know, my band Doth, we covered the philosopher by the band Death. If you don't know what that is, you should, because it's one of the most iconic death metal songs of all time. Uh it's from the nineties, like ninety-three or something off yeah, of the yeah. individual thought patterns album. It's my personal favorite death song. I know everyone has their own opinion on which song we should have covered, but I'm only going to pick what I want to do. And that was the one. And you played a solo at the end. At the end of the song, there's a trade-off section between bass and guitar solos. And I believe that on the original, it was Steve DeShogio on bass. So sick. And then Andy LaRocque or was it Chuck playing that solo? I think it was Andy. I always thought it was Chuck, but I never like looked at like the liner notes. I thought Chuck played the first solo in the song. Maybe that's what it was. I watched some live footage where Chuck played both. So I don't know. Either way, your solo is fucking great. And I want to talk about it because picking a song like that to cover, first of all, is a ballsy move. Thank you. I'm oh, calling yeah. myself ballsy. Yeah. But it's a scary thing to do. Because you're fucking with perfection, right? And legacy. People have been hearing and loving that song. Yeah. As it is for so long that, like, you're fucking with something sacred. So it was really, really important that we weren't trying to redo what they did. We also weren't trying to, like, make it swing or, like, some other genre. Just wanted to do a fucking modern metal, like, our version of the same song. Yeah. So with you, Doing the solo at the end, I want to talk a little bit about your approach because you did include some of the themes that are in the original solo. However, you still made it your own. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just wondering, psychologically speaking and also just thematically speaking, how do you approach a solo that, I mean, dude, everyone who listens to Extreme Metal knows this song yeah. and knows those solos at the end, right? So how do you... Pay tribute to it, keep the spirit of its DNA in there, but still make it a la Dan Sugarman. I mean, first of all, your modernization of the song is fucking incredible, dude. Like hearing Thank it you. detuned, hearing the mix of it like this, hearing like modern drums, it's fucking crushing. Oh, thank you. And as far as paying homage to what's there and still letting it be like what I'm doing, this might sound pretty like 
maybe, maybe dumb and, and foofy, but it's more like in my feeling as I'm doing it, I am there to pay respects to it. If I was there being like, oh, that's a stupid lick. I'm going to do something cooler. I think that would be perceptible. But because I'm sitting there and trying to absorb exactly what it is and play off of what was there, I subconsciously was just pulling on lines that I thought really popped to me. And that would be like, like an iconic little moment in that solo. So it was more just like my energy being there to pay respect to it is probably what kept it in the straight and narrow of that. Especially because like if you're talking about picking and choosing what to emphasize, like on the second time the solo comes in, you played the theme almost note for note, right? No, super different actually. His Super different? I'm trying to remember exactly what or it I guess was. the same contour. It was the same phrasing. Got it. All that I did was, so the cool thing about this section in the song, it's like, three fucking chords and a really weird time signature. And like, I'm not going to lie, dude. It was one of the most hard things to pull an idea out of because it was just, duh, and I'm just sitting there like, what the fuck can I do over this? That's going to make it feel like there's movements, contour and texture and like contrast and all of this stuff. That particular line, I don't really remember exactly what was going on. I think you guys were in like drop G. Is that what it was? I don't know what this tuning is called. G-C-G-C-F-A-D. Double drop G? The G to the C is a regular power chord. And then C to C is another power chord. Let's just say it's like drop C with a low G on it. Trippy. So basically I was looking at the idea that that low open drone note could be looked at in a certain framework. And then when it goes to the second chord, you could look at that like a modulation with the right perspective or lens on, right? So instead of mm -hmm. viewing it like the same key, like Andy or Chuck, I don't know who did that. Let's just put it out and say, we don't know. Okay. <laughs> Whoever did that particular phrase and someone's gonna know and be like, dude, it was this guy. Don't be a fucking noob. But I was trying to sort of reimagine it through how I like to do stuff. I like to be really modular in my playing. I like the target to be moving and you don't really know necessarily where home is. So in that very particular phrase, I modulate in that phrase as where in the original, it stays in one key. And then after that, I just do my own bullshit and with my Sean Lane diminished lick. Good times. So when you say modular, do you mean modulating? Mm -hmm. That's what you mean when you say you like to be modular in your playing. Is that an improper use of the word? I felt like I sounded smart. <laughs> you did sound smart. I just didn't know what you meant. <laughs> yes. Because modular also means hot, like a hot swappable pickup or something. Yeah. So you like to have modulation. Yeah. How do I say this? So like we all went through, you know, elementary school at some point. So imagine those like projectors, light projecting on the wall. And if you put a red clear gel, that's like the, the band is playing this. And then my solo is like a yellow gel going on top of it. And what projects on the wall, is it red? Is it yellow? It's fucking orange. Right. And then I might want to swap my yellow gel and put a blue gel over it. And then the wall is green, but the background mm -hmm. of that was red all the time. Does that make a, li a little bit of, yeah, yeah, it does. It's a weird intangible concept. It's like superimposing. Exactly. And, and behind both of those colors, behind orange and green is red. And I know that sounds fucking weird to say, but that's that thinking that allows you to approach stuff in an abstract way that's going to yield something that doesn't feel abstract when you listen to it. It should feel natural. Like a good time signature, a, a funky time signature done well, you don't know it's fucked up. It feels good. Same thing with modulations. Yeah, time signature, what is it? One, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Or is it, I don't remember, but it's like. I remember 13 is what I remember counting. Something like that. Yeah. I just had to play it for the playthroughs. Two, three, four, five, and six, seven, eight, nine, ten, one, two, three. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, you're right. Or is it one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten? Or maybe it's 10 total. Either way, it's odd. Yeah. And you had to count. 
but it feels cool. It feels awesome. I was about to say, I'm in the boat where I didn't have to count at all. I sat there and listened to Krim ripping shit over that. And I was like, I totally get the groove. I just need to find a way to make the notes feel good. Let me rephrase. I had to count to make sure that I wasn't playing it wrong just because I just didn't want to fuck it up. So the first few times I counted it, but then after that, like it wasn't necessary because Krim, Krim. Makes me angry, dude. <laughs> Why? Because it's just, he's one of the sickest drummers ever of all time. He, is. he stepped into VTech's shoes, one of my favorite drummers of all time, and decapitated. Yes. Decapitated is so one of my favorite bands that my coffee company is about to release a new coffee called Decapitated. That's awesome. Like, I'm so fucking, I'm so deep into that world, but Krim is just so solid, so powerful, so fucking creative. It's just like something to behold when you watch that dude play. For like 10 years, I've been watching his YouTube videos, probably longer. Yeah, man, I uh, couldn't agree with you more. Not to get too far off topic, I played with lots of drummers and lots of great drummers. And so what I'm about to say is not a knock on any of them. They're all great. Totally. There's something about Krim's creativity that makes me a better writer. So like when we're writing together, he's such a like creative force. And I've never experienced it quite like this where his ideas or his suggestions, they're on par with some of the best producers I've worked with and with some of the- Interesting. Yeah, he knows exactly- where to take the song next. Like, he's not going to write my chord progression for me, but he knows exactly what to say to me at the right point in the song for where we need to go. And sometimes he will take something I wrote and he'll cut it up, rearrange the timing or the structure. And obviously, he's not thinking of key changes or things like that. So then I'll have to rework it to make sure that it harmonically makes sense. Mm -hmm. But still, the idea in there, his musical brain is something unlike anything I've ever experienced. It's fucking cool. Yeah, dude, that's that's so funny. I, I call it the musician's reptilian brain. It's that innate, automated thinking that just happens in the background, like this innate knowing. Like he just knows what the song should be, and he may not be able to be like, oh, it should be like this, go to the four chord. He may not be speaking like that, but his musician's reptilian brain is so fucking developed that he makes other people look like not developed. <laughs> He's also a pretty good guitar player considering. He had a solo record. Am I making up that I heard? No, no, no. He has more than one, I believe. Dude, him and Naveen Copperwise. He's nonstop. Do you know Naveen? I don't know Naveen, but I know Naveen. Those two dudes are like on another fucking level. The insane drumming, the insane songwriting, the insane ability to play guitar that well, producing, engineering, like both of those dudes I hold in such a high regard. I don't even look at them like the best drummers. They're just like, the best music people in, in music. <laughs> That's why I wanted him in the band, yes, honestly. Yes, Because the musical side of it. But yeah. all right, back to your solo. It's very wild. The pinch harmonics and the dive bombs. It's just like, it's got this unhinged kind of feel to it too, which is interesting given the context of a prog song with odd time signatures and all that musically correct kind of stuff. Still, you manage to bring some of that like Zach Wild dime bag kind of shit into it. Yes. So how do you get into the mind space for <sighs> that? Because that stuff, you don't really hear that done well over Prague because there's more of a, I guess, free form kind of. Yeah. I don't know how to explain yeah. it. It's just like, it's too wild for the genre. 
almost. I guess one of the easiest ways to look at it, I mean, first and foremost, my approach or perspective when I'm writing a song is like looking for the holes, look for the contrast. And the contrast that I saw in there was everything was so precise and straightforward and ahead and like single chord, no rhythm, second chord, no rhythm, shake it, the, dun, dun, the drum fill. Chord. There was like nothing going on with it, right? So I was like, because it was so precise with the chord changes with the fills, with the chords, the way they felt even, like even your tone made it feel like it was just razor edge. I felt like the contrast in that was like the opposite. Mm -hmm. It would be unhinged. It would be loose. It would be slurred. It would be fucked up phrasing. It'd be odd groupings of stuff. To me, whatever the hole is in a song, that's what I'm looking to do. Uh, another song that I just did that came out today, actually, for this dude, Hiro the Hero. I heard about that. Yeah, it's a fucking really, really cool song, man. It's about, like, depression and suicide. It's a really fucking heavy song. I actually got the call to do it two hours. I found out about this fucking tumor in my neck, so it was like I poured myself into it. But that good song, timing. seriously good timing, man. I was literally, dude. I tapped into some real ass shit for that. But effectively, the whole song's about substance abuse and depression and suicide. So I wanted the solo to start feeling like slurred speech and then slowly get more, mm -hmm. more and more refined and like acrobatic and like razor edge to kind of show that that sensation of like no matter how bad or how much of a tailspin you're in, you could always correct course. So even though that shit is like meta or hidden inside of my solo, like that's my approach to whatever the song is. Does that make sense? Killer, man. And it's over like a Rage Against the Machine style alt rock song with two rappers killing it and singing badass choruses. It's like a very weird world, you know? I love how short it is too. Yeah, it was just, what is it, like 15 seconds, not even? Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, but like the essence of what I'm trying to share here is like, I just look for whatever the hole is in the song that like could use some bolstering, right? So like in that one, I wanted, I guess to solidify the storyline of like, being in a tailspin and correcting course, I wanted to like in the macro, put that in the micro and show that again, that storyline in like a little solo. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So whatever the fuck the song needs or whatever contrast is there, I'm, I'm going to look for. So back to the philosopher, it felt so precise that it needed some of that drunken whiskey finger fucking dime bag shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. It totally. just felt like it needed it. It just those like stanky vibratos and squeals and little bit of chromaticism, like all of that stuff is my bread and vegan butter, my gluten-free bread and vegan butter. I didn't even know that it needed it. I mean, dude, after you get Raphael, you don't need nothing, but I'm stoked that you felt like you needed it. Ra so <laughs> Raphael Trujillo did the other solo. Blew me away, dude. And he also did a similar thing that you did, even though your solos are nothing alike, he also took the original and reimagined it or like infused. That's a good word for it, reimagined. DNA. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, rather than just playing it. I wish I didn't hear that solo first. Cause then I was like, Oh fuck. I got to really put on my big boy pants. <laughs> that dude is so good. Yeah. I don't understand. I don't understand. Yeah. Let's just leave it at that. No one understands yeah. moving on. It's insane. Okay. So when you do hear something like that, is it intimidating? I'm just wondering because from my perspective, this band has always had guitar players that are fucking ridiculous and that who are way more virtuosic than me. Like I know what I'm good at, but I'm not like a soloing virtuoso. I can do it, but not like that. I've always had to contend with that in the band. So I got used to it, but I've always wondered what does it feel like for other people? So what is it like to step in the ring with someone like that, who is like God's gift to guitar? Yeah. I want to start by saying, first of all, Amol is one of my Mount Rushmore dudes. 
as far as like note choice, phrasing, cleanliness, how he infused like gypsy jazz and metal and just said like, fuck it, I'm doing this. Like that dude and what Doth did all together, dude, the concealers changed everything for me. Well, that's awesome. Thank you. It really fucking did, man. And that hit me at a time where I was like, there's got to be better guitar players out there. Like, why am I feeling like I'm 17 and I could like play this stuff? And then I heard that and I was like, all right, I got a fucking woodshed for a couple of years. And it was inspiring, right? So just to be hit up by you to do a Doth solo, I was like, all right, dude, time to fucking stop playing D chords. Let's play some fucking leads. And then all of a sudden you're sending me this Raphael thing and I'm already of the mindset, like this is gonna be stupid sick. I already know it's a Doth does death. Like I'm fucked already, right? So if I walk into that with that headspace, the I'm fucked thing, I'm gonna walk away with a fucked product. So Mm -hmm. I throw that part of my like little me outside And I just confidently walk into a situation knowing that no one can Dan like Dan can Dan. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. The reason I'm bringing that up is because so many people have imposter syndrome. We still do, yeah. The way I have dealt with it, because I have it too, you have it, you can acknowledge it, and then you just ignore it and do the thing anyways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's just do the thing. I mean, dude, like here's a good example. And just in terms of like, you ever walk into a situation and be concerned and like, no one can ail like ail can ail. My situation right now with my medical fucking concern, I had to have some backup dudes step in for me and fill in for these Metallica tours right now. And lo and behold, I was like, Riff Hard's going to have the guy I need to get. Lo and behold, Miles Dimitri Baker is the yep. dude that I hit up because he is the fucking shit. Unbelievable player. And he's sitting there. Yeah, he's so good. Dude, he was doing this shit where I would like show him some crazy tapping lick and he would stare at me and you would like watch his eyes processing it. And then he would completely just finger it differently. He would like be transposing in his mind and want to play it his way, but he wouldn't have to like suss it out. It would just happen automatically. Yeah. He's like that. I, I was just like, how, what dude, what? And side note, because Miles is one of the sickest guitar players that I know of for him to tell me that ice nine's shit on this new record is some of the hardest stuff he's ever played is really weird to hear. The point that I'm trying to make besides that is shocking to hear because I wasn't trying to make it a hard record, but it's just really cool that he's like a tech death guy feeling like it's of that tech death world. So it's really cool to feel that. But he was, air quotes, struggling to like phrase like I phrase. He could play all my notes, but it sounds like Miles. Yes. Just like when I was filling in for JD before it became my position, I was playing his notes like, Dan, you and I were talking about this yesterday. It's the how, not the what that matters, right? Totally. The what, I could share that shit with fucking anyone and anyone could play what I'm doing. You could share anything that you're playing with me, but we would not sound exactly the same unless you become skilled at impersonations. And that is a skill set that guitar players have if you develop it. Like Guthrie is legendary at impersonations, right? Yes. It becomes a really, really good technique for ripping the essence of players. And then you kind of like get your fucking witch's brew and throw a little bit of fucking frog's tit and fucking dime bag squeals and whatever the hell you you mix in your pot. And hopefully you walk out with something that's a little bit uniquely you. I don't know where you're going to find frog tit, but if you find the right guy, let me know. I'm sure it's out there. (laughs) Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. That actually is what gave me confidence to approach people who are Olympic level because I'm not concerned about anything bad that could come of it because I know that what I'm asking them to do is something that I would never do. And the stuff that I do that's uniquely me, it doesn't matter how good they are. It's not going to sound like me unless I do it. And I feel very good about that. You can even follow like an exact recipe for cooking something. 
And the energy behind the person who's making it will cause the food to taste different or feel different in digestion. It's the person doing it that causes the final product, not necessarily the ingredients or steps to get there. Yeah. And it's a really interesting fact. It's kind of like in mixing, you know? So in mixing, we like to say that a good mix is the product of like a thousand little decisions. And so that's why when we started doing Nail the Mix, at first people were a little negative about it because they were afraid that we were going to create a bunch of clones that would take their jobs. You can't, yeah. Bullshit. You can't. If it was possible, it would have happened by now with the amount of people who have gotten these tracks and Mm -hmm. watched these mixes. We would have already produced some clones, but it's impossible because you can see somebody's moves but you're not in their head. So as much as they can explain it, as much as you can analyze it, you will never experience it the way that they experience it. It's so true. And their entire life that led to those decisions, every one of their influences, every one of their previous musical choices, you can't recreate that. It's the same with guitar players. Like yeah. Whatever ends up being your style is the culmination of everything you've ever done. Absolutely. And just learning your solos there's a lot more to you sounding like you than these solos. Yeah. yeah. And there's also a very like tactile anatomical version of this. Steinbag's a great example, right? I could watch that dude exactly how he fingers the notes, exactly the notes that he's playing. But unless I can like fucking Casper the friendly ghost go inside of his body and like feel what the fuck he's actually doing and be like, oh, that's how hard he fucking frets when he's doing a vibrato. Oh, that's what a pick stroke feels like to be Dimebag's hand. I'll never do that. Even if I have the guitars, the string gauge, the amp, the fucking dyed goatee, like it's not going to help my tone. You know what I mean? I mean, maybe the goatee helps, but I was going to say, yeah, I'm working on it, dude. I'm working on it. But it's, it's something just really interesting that like tactile, intangible, anatomical stuff. You'll never be able to know what a player is feeling like to do what they do. All you can do is emulate what it looks like and use your best judgment to get close to what it sounds like. But you're always going to be squinting and blurring your vision and going, yeah, it's pretty fucking close. Let's move on. Exactly. Which is which retains the unis of it, which is good. Well, what you can't do anything but be yourself. Right. Right. So I feel like, and I've said this before, but it's relevant. I'm sure you get asked this, but you get asked a lot, like, how do you develop your own signature style? How do you get your own sound, your own stuff? And it's like, you've already got it. And the thing is, if you don't think it's very good or other people don't think it's very good, you need to get better straight up. You just need to spend more time. Your personality is there and uh, your tendencies are there and your character is there. Like who you are is who you are. So your ability to physically manipulate the instrument or pro tools or whatever, that's just a matter of putting in the time and just doing it over and over. But as you do it more, your personality will come through more. Now, the thing is, some people's personalities aren't that interesting. Hmm. (laughs) Sad fact, but they're just not. I guess that goes back to saying like, how do I retain respect for like paying homage to something? And I'm saying it's retaining that feeling of respect as I'm doing it. If you're not like interesting, (laughs) nothing interesting is going to go into the song. That's a fucking deep thought I've never had. Holy shit. Opus agrees. Yeah, she's she's all about this. She's like, I'm interesting. Listen to this. Yeah. Are you recording? I am. <laughs> what was I about to say two seconds ago before my dog just shat the bed on my brain power? We were talking about how like- Oh, oh, developing your voice. So have I on this podcast already talked about my method for developing unique voice? I feel like I may have. 
Man, we've talked about so much stuff. So I'll briefly run through this because my brain works in such an interesting way that like I needed to come up with a system because I have students asking me, how do you develop your voice? I have a student, Troy, I've been with for like eight years. Troy sounds like Troy, no matter how much he's learning directly from me. I have another student, Joe Borky, about four plus years, maybe five years. Dude sounds like Joe Borky. You cannot get around that, right? But there's this thing that I discovered in trying to help people determine what their thing was because a lot of people want to come to me or like Wes Houck or a specific teacher to learn their specific sound. What I recognized, do you remember that South Park episode? It's about the food pyramid and one of like the interns accidentally knocks the food pyramid upside down and then they like, it like solves the diet for America. Yes. That idea was like in my head as I was looking at this idea and I was trying to come up with this concept of musical DNA. And the way that I did it for myself first, and I ask my students, I go, what's your favorite genres? List them all. And then give me like three to five bands from each of those genres. And now in each of those bands, who are your favorite guitar players? And what about those guitar players make them stand out to you? Who are your favorite bass players? What makes them stand out to you? Who are your favorite drummers? What makes them stand out to you? Who's your favorite non-vocalists? That could be like piano, horn, fucking theremin. I don't give a shit. And then who are your favorite vocalists? And from guitarist all the way to vocalist, you have to be very specific. What about them is why they're your favorite, right? It's because super powerful note choice. I love the way that they phrase and there's just like this raw energy behind everything they do. It could be something as simple as that, right? So you take this thing, the important stuff is what we start with, like the genres, the bands. We flip this shit on your head and all of a sudden I've realized that my biggest influences are Maynard from Tool, slurring note choice, pushing and pulling beats, tone. Then I'm super deep into Chris Cornell. The dude's vibrato is fucking in. Actually, I'm sorry. Lane Staley is my vibrato. Lane Staley from Alice in Chains. Chris Cornell is my power and my note choice, right? And it's just like, the fuck did you just say, dude? And you start going down the list and realizing that like a piano player, Thelonious Monk may inspire me more than fucking Dimebag. And he does because Thelonious was legendary for a lot of like dissonance, and a lot of weird, janky stuff. You could easily say that my janky minor second chromaticism is more closely resembling that than it is fucking Marty Friedman. It's a weird perspective to look at it. So you start to see, A, not many people are approaching it like this. So that's going to make you land in a different place altogether. And B, let's just make it two so we could switch it up. A, that, two, um, <laughs> you're going to be doing something that is so uniquely you that the only thing you can do at the end of it is become more you. Yes, absolutely. And by not focusing on guitar players and guitar licks and guitar tone and like the amps that people use that you like, you're just going to create a copycat situation. My guitar playing is 90s vocalists. What the hell? Yeah, so I can tell you, for instance, a lot of my use of arpeggios is Matt Bellamy's synth. Yes. Oh, genius, dude. Genius. Yeah. Not his guitar playing. Yeah, I love his guitar playing, but specifically... His synth writing informs a lot of my use of arpeggios. The way Gustav Mahler does unisons, yeah. unison parts with the orchestra, that's where I get a lot of impact from. Like, I've done this. The way that the Beatles harmonize their vocals, so sick. that's where I get a lot of my harmonies, guitar harmonies that people hear that they say like sound like me is actually my Beatles influence. Yeah, that's John and out. Paul right there, dude. Yep, and George. And George, sorry. <laughs> and George can't forget the drummer <laughs> what about Ringo well did he do any vocal harmonies I'm sure he sang some I bet you he sang a few I'm sure but like right off the bat everything you just said I'm going yeah that that lines up with what I know of as your sound 
That's really trippy, dude. And some morbid angel. That's a little more on the nose, right? Yes, that's on the nose. But if you combine morbid angel with uh, Matt Bellamy's synth writing with some Beatles vocals and like some, I guess, over the top Gustav Mahler. A little bit of existential dread. It helps too. Yeah, I can't get rid of that. <laughs> I definitely agree. And I think that when people say you need to listen to more than just metal, I agree with that. But at the same time, I don't think you need to listen to anything you don't want to listen to. So even if all you listen to is metal, you can still do this, right? Because metal is a very, very diverse genre. The reason I'm saying that is, again, there are people who only like metal. And I realize that, sure, there's more out there, but you only like what you like. I would encourage them to seek other yes, things. Yes. But if they're not going to, you can still do this within metal. I'll play bad cop here. You could play good cop. Dude, I was the most elitist metalhead. I have to start by saying that everything was the worst in the fucking world unless it had like blast beats and gutturals. Like I was I was the fucking worst. But at a certain point when I was like five and just wanted to eat mac and cheese and french fries and my mom was like, you should really try this fucking sea snail or like some weird fucking thing. It was a lot for me to fucking gather the courage to do it. I didn't really want to do it. And then maybe I decided it sucked or maybe I decided, holy fuck, mollusks are kind of tasty, which they're not. But like sometimes you need to at least explore and heed the advice of people who have gone through those things. And obviously I'm not speaking to like yeah. the 35-year-old who knows what they like, but maybe younger kids who grew up with being told that metal is awesome and other things aren't awesome. You'd be amazed. Look, I agree, but it's kind of like the whole sex ed thing yes. from the 90s <laughs> where there was that group of people that was like, don't give them condoms. They shouldn't be doing it. And it's like, well, they're going to do it. Yeah. So I feel like if they're not going to listen to other stuff. That's fair. If they're not, you can tell people forever to open their minds to other stuff. But if they're not going to, still, if you were to like pull it from metal, I guess the nuance of Opeth mixed with the darkness from emperor sure the size of russian circles like you can yeah. still do that with right metal. i would just add based on my fucking point just because i'm purely playing devil's advocate here and saying the other side telling people like oh you are who you are just do what you do like i just had that conversation the other day with someone and they were like you really feel that way but i was just going to say at the same time in terms of agriculture monocultures are deadly in terms of diets mono diets Brutal for the body. You'll die because you need fucking nutrients of other things to stay alive. Yeah, I actually do agree with you. It's a sustainability thing, I guess I would say, yeah. right? Like at a certain point it works and then a line is drawn and you're like, maybe we should grow some fucking peaches or something. Well, you're <laughs> only going to get so far with it, right? Yeah. At the same time, I don't want to pretend to know what the influences for Cannibal Corpse are, for instance, or Slayer. Yeah. I'm guessing, I'm happy to be corrected, I don't think that the influences are too far outside of metal. You're probably not wrong. And there's an argument to be made for just sticking to what it is that you're into. Like if that's what your voice is, like if your voice is Cannibal Corpse, for instance, it kind of just is what it is. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm actually kind of tripping out. Is it the band's job to make sure that it's that, but is it a lead guitar player's job to bring in that outside shit? It depends on what band they're in. True. Because I guess I'm sort of looking at the idea that like every instance where I'm in a situation where I'm writing a solo. Look at the people I ask to play on my stuff or who I've played with. Yeah. Right. If you look at Emil, look at Sean Reinert, you, Raphael, Spiro, all these people, 
I'm asking people who aren't just going to bring the stock shit to the table. Right. I know a lot of people who could bring the stock shit to the table, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I'm not asking them for a reason because I don't want that in this band. I do not want typical shred solos. Right. I don't hate it in other people's music, but I don't want that in Doth's music, period. And the thing that Emil did was he established that we could do our thing and not have your typical metal shred bullshit again i'm saying that in terms of our sound yeah when i hear that in somebody else's music it might be fucking sick but like for us it's just not appropriate and so i'm asking people to play leads that i know are gonna bring outside shit to the table yeah so it's kind of like yeah it depends what band you're in like what are the parameters of your project yes exactly and i don't really necessarily know exactly like the full point i'm trying to make but i'm recognizing this weird macro micro thing and just the fact like let's reference that hero the hero thing again right it's starting in a place that is super simple super direct super straight ahead and then slowly landing in this place that's a little bit more precise a little quicker and stuff like that i am bringing in a bunch of outside stuff that within that 16 second window, I'm doing drunken classic rock thing to a tapped dominant arpeggio to this weird bebop line to then doing death style harmony on a arpeggio to then doing like a big ass dime bomb, right? That's like in 15 Mm -hmm. seconds, I just got away with shit that if that was in a riff, you would turn it off within the first change. Yes. A lead guitar player or maybe just solos in general can get away with infusing a fuckload more stuff outside as we're the band writer, the person riffing the rhythm. It's their job to like maintain that color red, just to reference what we were saying before. And I'm sort of just looking at the idea that maybe the magic is having those leads tap into that super outside stuff because then all of a sudden you're landing with like this shade of green that you may have never seen before because of your red and there. That's the magic in what I listen to and what I want for my own music. Yes, dude. Yeah, just the idea of like, if I had a riff that did fucking classic rock to fucking chromatics to our pay, like you would not want to listen to that riff. But in that 15 second solo, you're going, that's pretty sick. Yeah. It's a weird thing you can get away with. I don't know what that is. And I've never really noticed it nor spoken about it. So it's a weird, it's a weird thing. Yeah. But still, just like a good riff, a good solo is still following a theme and a progression and going somewhere. So even if you're employing all these different techniques, the solo still has to sound like it's a cohesive piece of music. And so by what you're describing of like a riff that has like a little bit of everything, to me, what you're describing is a non-cohesive piece of music. Right. I do hear soloists sometimes who are trying to be diverse or bring in a bunch of different things and where it falls flat on his face. Right. Right. Because they're just trying to be different and they're not trying to make a cohesive piece of music. So I would much rather hear something that even if it's like got less influences is cohesive Mm -hmm. than something that's just all over the place, but is non-cohesive. Yeah, dude. I mean, it's like a stony midnight kitchen sink snack. You might be like, let me put peanut butter and bananas with Fritos and uh, like a bunch of weird shit together and fucking malt balls. I'm making up a bunch of fucking gross shit, right? And then I'm going to mash it together and freeze it. And then all of a sudden you have this like delicious peanut butter malt ball ice cream that's never existed before, right? Possibly. Possibly. Or the flip side of that is it's fucking disgusting and terrible and who would ever put peanut butter with malt balls or, or whatever, right? To a certain degree, the solos being this moment where it's like, let's get unhinged, let's go off the cuffs. A song is designed to be like within the framework and a solo is like its own side story. 
It doesn't like reference that much from the beginning or the end of the song. It has its own little like tangent and it may circle back, but it might not. It's like its own side piece to the whole entire mission. Sometimes that lands and sometimes it doesn't. I just recently had watermelon and mustard and it was fucking amazing. You know what I mean? Like that's a weird combo. It shouldn't be, but it fucking is. Pepper and strawberry, delicious. The fuck? Watermelon and feta. Ever had that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And a little fennel, dude. Ooh. Oh yeah. Yeah, so it's just like coming up with like weird ingredient and flavor combinations that would be atypical. I think an atypical creative person can come up with a bunch of weird ideas and concepts and then not all of them will land. And I guess being in a situation where you're hired out to do those, you obviously don't want to present a shitty kitchen sink dish. So I guess that, to circle back to what we were saying before, that's where my concern would be is like, well, I hope they hired me for what they're getting. (laughs) That's more the concern. Yes. You know, more than like, I hope that I'm as good as what the other guy did. That stuff is not even my mind anymore. It's more like I want to live up to and over deliver for what you hired me for. That makes sense. When I've been asked to do guest stuff like that, I also, I'm like, you know, I'm not like some shredder guy. You're going to get something cool, but if you're looking for Wes or Amel or some shit, like go talk to them. Yeah. This is a really interesting thing is like, the more you specialize in something, the more sought out you can beat. If I needed a solo that had a very specific thing, Wes is the only guy I could hit up for that. Same with Amel. If I had like a really cool, synthy, textured fucking riff, you'd be the guy. There's very specific specialized things. And I think it's really, really powerful to, at a certain point, recognize what you're drawn to. And that's why I'm saying before the whole like flipping of the pyramid and discovering what your things are, the sooner you determine what your trajectory can be and the sooner you commit to that, the sooner you're specializing and the more steps ahead you are of your neighbors and being specialized in that. And obviously if you're too niche, you might have some problems. Like no one wants to listen to like arpeggios on an accordion. (laughs) Although I did buy an accordion plugin recently for a project and it's kind of (laughs) tight. I'm sure you find a way to make it Yeah, it's, it's, it's fun, a little polka. Never hurt nobody. But it's just one of those things where it's like honing in on what makes you, you is going to make you more easily sought after. And then it's going to make what you have to say recognizable and just being able to double down on what makes you stoked. I'm noticing now the things that I love about music is when I'm like listening to something and it makes me laugh. Mm -hmm. That's the shit that I'm like, I love that about the song. If there's this crazy fucking part that I have to like rewind and listen to three times because it's just like so insane. That's the feeling I love for music. So at any point, I want to be able to bring that feeling to whatever I'm doing. And it has to come from a place of authenticity and not try hardness. Your philosopher solo definitely had that effect. I was just thinking about on that cover, the place where the me being me thing, I think, came out the most is in the intro, actually, in the arpeggio. Yes, I was about to say that. Because that intro on the original is tapped. I'm not interested in tapping. Mm -hmm. I wanted to play it in octaves and arrange it the way I would arrange in one of my own songs, alternate picked, and my style of playing arpeggios the way I think it sounds cool and the way that I feel comfortable and uh, is my thing. Mm -hmm. Not that I invented arpeggios, but that's... Wait, you didn't? No, sorry. (laughs) Sorry to disappoint. Tapping it like in the original is not me at all. That makes sense. Listening in my mind back to the two versions, that absolutely rings so fucking true, but I never like connected that. That is super interesting. And also the harmony choice. There's, sounds like you're doing octaves and a couple unisons. It sounds like there's like four guitars doing that arpeggio. Okay, so there's two guitars doing the octave lines and then there's two guitars doing- Like the chords behind it? Well, I'm just playing 
chord tones as octave chords mm. uh, in the rhythm, and then the arpeggios are one octave apart. So it's four guitars total. But two doing that arpeggio. Yes. We were talking about this just yesterday, but it being like the octave, it being alternate pick, the way you play with your specific left hand touch, the way the right hand strikes the string, like all of that is so you. I'm actually a little mad at myself that I didn't recognize the difference in that technique and approach. I totally hear it now. Well, the thing is the song opens with arpeggios. Yeah. I think if people are listening and they're wondering why does it sound different than the original other than the tuning or why does it sound more like one of our songs or something, well, it's played differently. It's played the way I would play it. Makes perfect sense. play the way I did play it. Mm -hmm. And I have nothing against tapping or anything. Again, you got to do what is you. Absolutely, dude. And I think it's like choosing to double down on those things at a certain point in your playing trajectory is really fucking smart. I think doing that too early can be detrimental. I agree. And I'm speaking more to my past self and to anyone who might be hearing this who's like, all right, I like arpeggios. I've been playing for a few years. I'm arpeggio guy. Taste the fucking rainbow. Go quote unquote travel and explore the different like options of what music can be to then determine what is worthy of doubling down on and how to make what is uniquely you more uniquely you, right? Oh, totally. I would definitely say do double down. Just don't choose that option too soon. For instance, I was legato guy early on. And I needed to then like relearn how to do everything else afterwards because I only did legato. Okay, so when you were legato guy early on, how did you come to that at the exclusion of everything else? Like, how did that happen? I could do it. I was like, oh, my left hand is just so fucking developed. Why would I not take advantage of my anatomical prowess here? Like, I fucking was born this way. No, dude, I just didn't work on my right hand, you lazy fuck. Like, Okay, so that right there, that's the question to ask yourself is, am I leaning in this direction because I just didn't do anything else, or am I leaning in this direction because this is yeah. where I actually want to go artistically? Is it convenience or conviction? I basically made a choice because of convenience, and I learned later on that making any choice on the guitar or in songwriting because it's the easier—actually, fuck that in life—because it's the easier thing is never the right choice. It always needs to be the better thing, the thing that sounds better, the thing that is better, the thing that is right. And obviously, there is no innate right globally speaking, but inside of a single decision in yourself and like an internal moment, there's only one fucking option. And if you go against yourself enough, you start to like eat away at your trust in yourself to grow, to make choices, to make the right choices, to make a fucking left hand or a right hand turn in a fucking song. Like that stuff gets really hard. So it's the conviction and the confidence of making choices on the fly. I was just talking to my student yesterday about this. My version of what a producer is, is there's Obviously, trillions of types of producers, but the easiest way to look at it is a producer just makes decisions and doesn't look back. Yeah. They make super quick, super awesome, correct, prime decisions. You won't ever find a good producer being like, what do you think about changing the kick sound now? You won't hear that shit. You know what I mean? Or actually, I think we should have done a double chorus. Dude, we're here now. We don't fucking go back. So that concept, I really, really took forward with me and everything. And honestly, I, I keep that shit tattooed on the back of my eyelids. Making decisions in this industry and confidently moving forward in them and also like committing to an idea. How many times have you started an idea that you think sucks, but turns out to be the coolest thing you've ever done because you knew what it could have been, but everyone around you is like, dude, move on. Like that sucks. Quite often. It's quite often, right? But in yourself, you know that like it's kind of slipping through your fingertips, but you know there's something there. And by like trusting yourself, believing in yourself, having a track record that that is correct to do, because obviously, dude, being overly confident or making a decision too early and what you should be committing to is negative. But those are the types of things that I think generate 
a series of wins that help you make a career out of this stuff. You know, one of the things that's actually working real well about this Doth lineup is I feel like they have a lot of faith in me. That's huge. Which makes me confident to like show them stuff at a very early stage where it sucks. That's so cool. And as opposed to not show them until it's a lot more developed because I don't want to get ridiculed or have the idea shot down before it's ready to go anywhere. They have a lot of faith. I've noticed that like I know what I'm doing. So that makes me comfortable to show them stuff super early, which then gets their ideas on stuff super early. Yeah, dude. And it's just a happier situation. Dude, vision is vision. If you can tap into that shit, like you know something that they don't know. And I'm not even saying that in like a negative way. I'm saying like you have this idea and if they don't like the idea that you have because you quote unquote showed it too soon, they just don't know what you know. You know what it's supposed to be. You know what it could be. Hold on, guys. Let me make this a little bit better. I promise you'll like it. 99% of the time it's the case, right? I have this like really strong belief that any idea that I have came into my mind to be fully birthed right? And it's my job to see it to the fucking finish line. Doesn't mean it needs to be released. Doesn't mean I need to force it down people's throats. But if I'm ever working on something, I'm going to finish the idea. And if it gets like a no from two out of three people in the room or three out of five people, whatever the fuck I'm outvoted on. Cool, dude. At least I know I made it what I wanted it to be. So you're judging what it could have been. Yes. So much shit is stillborn, dude, in songwriting. It's such a travesty. You know what I mean? I was just listening to so many mm-hmm. versions of the Ice Nine Kill record, Welcome to Horrorwood. I just said our band name without an S, Ice Nine Kill. <laughs> we, <laughs> I'm on an S diet. I'm trying to avoid them, dude. <laughs> we have so many versions of these fucking songs that we just like, something's not right. And we moved on and I'm listening back to these versions and I'm like, dude, there's something so sick there. And I'm almost certain that we can now add some life to these songs and potentially bring them back around and do something with it. But it's like the notion of giving up too soon. You know, Harold and Kumar, remember that movie? No. You never seen Harold and Kumar? I don't think so. All right, man. Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. Two stoner, amazing genius idiots. They get ripped as fuck and they want to go to Harold and or they want to go to Harold and Kumar. They want to go to White Castle and they walk out of their apartment building. And this is where the plot of the whole entire movie happens. He goes, oh, shit, I forgot my cell phone. And he looks back two feet from to like his door, his front door. And he's like, oh, we've gone too far. And then, they, then the whole plot line begins because they didn't have their phone. Everything's fucked. Two feet away is all they had to do. It's true. That happens. Yes. Yes, it does. I also have this feeling that even if there's potential in an idea, if they're just not feeling it, even after, like, I tried, then it's okay. I can just make another idea. And that's the huge thing in collaboration, right? The ability to not be hyper-attached to something is really, really potent, right? Yeah, absolutely. Though I will definitely say humor me. Like if they don't like something the way it is in a demo, but I know that it's not there yet, I will ask to be humored because I have a vision for it that just needs to be tweaked. Yeah, dude, I'm a fan of that shit. Like, again, that's just seeing an idea through to the end. And to me, that's the vision stuff, right? Krim did not like the middle section in No Rest, No End where it goes into that Baroque insanity. Krim was not feeling that shit at all, actually. And we didn't have a battle of us. There was no battle. He, he just wasn't feeling it in its original form. Mm-hmm. And I got him to humor me. And like now we're all real glad it's in there. I knew it was going to be sick, but I can't expect him to know it's going to be sick just based on 
my demo that's not sick yet. Mm-hmm. Like it's not his fault that my demo is not sick yet. It's my fault. So it's my job to make it better. However, a good collaborator, if you say, you got to trust me on this and uh, humor me here, like mm-hmm. I still got to work on it. A good collaborator will say, okay, if they trust you. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, uh, I'm trying, I think it was the creative act, the new Rick Rubin book. Have you checked that out yet? No. Should I? I fucking love it, dude. It's like proverbs about creation. It's like one page, like one little paragraph about something and you could just stare at it for an hour and just be like, what? But he has this one concept that was huge to me. It's the idea that collaboration is making the other person's idea better than yours. I like that. If everyone in the room is trying to do that, then the objective is making the best thing that could ever exist. And by making the other person's more important than your own and they're doing the same for yours, you fucking win. That's cool. It's a really cool idea, right? Yeah, totally. In my producing and doing a little like ghostwriting sessions, I've been exploring that a lot more and I cannot wait to bring that into like a proper band writing situation where I have my band stake in it as opposed to being a producer. It's a little different because as a producer, you're disconnected, right? (laughs) Speaking of your writing, because we have like 10 minutes left. Oh, shit. I want to talk about your upcoming solo record. Oh, hell yeah. I listened to the version you sent me. First of all, it's sick. Second of all, you use octaves a lot, and I like that. Oh, yes. Well, this version of the record I wrote for you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. I was telling you on text that I could recognize you on that just from the beginning, which is cool all throughout. And regardless of what influences are in there, like what direction it's going, your style is so defined that I wouldn't think it was anybody but you. And I think that that's really, really really cool about it. You know, I hear influences from, you know, like some of the Marty Friedman records and like all this different stuff. It doesn't matter. It still sounds just like you. And I like that it's actual music and not just shred bullshit. Yeah. It's really easy, especially in the instrumental world to just be like, hold my beer, watch this. Like, I feel like a lot of people, no names. I can't even think of a single person that is someone that you're interviewing, but there's a lot of people in that frame who think that that's what instrumental music peaks at, whether it be someone who's attempting to do it or someone who's looking at it with a negative view from the outside. This is my third instrumental record and all of my records are are journaling processes for me. I write these songs really, really, really fucking quick. I don't second guess anything. All of the takes are like live and unedited. I actually wrote and recorded this record live in front of Twitch. Every song, every moment was invented. Balls captured. motherfucker. I tried, man. I tried. Every moment was thought of, written, captured, and tracked in front of people. And if I was hitting a wall, you were there to watch it and you were there to watch me correct my tailspin. And to me, it was like the process in revealing to everybody that like, oh God, the guy in Ice Nine Kills, he must be so fucking good at, like, watch we suck, dude. Watch this be terrible. Because I want to reveal to everybody that up and down every level, we all do things that are not fucking awesome. It's just how quick can you pull yourself out of failure into success? And that's what I think creates the differentiating factor between a great band and a band that's struggling. How willing are you to fail and how can you correct that to success? So like, I will take an idea until a fail point and then instead of getting like frustrated and pulling my hair out and like ending the stream, I'm gonna correct it. I'm gonna either delete it and start again without being pissed about it. There was one particular song, Conquest, it's the opening track on the record where I wrote just the most fucked up breakdown section and I was like pretty certain that's what I wanted. And then at the end of the session, I was like, I think I fucking hate this. I'm going to stop right here. I'll see you guys tomorrow and we'll pick up where we left off. And it hit me immediately the second day. Oh, it's a solo section. 
And then that section is one of the coolest parts in the song to me now. It has this really cool metric modulation going on as well as just modulation modulation. And it's these types of moments where like by just committing to myself, I know the finish line is somewhere in that idea, you know, but it's just one of those things where doing it in front of a live audience is as much for me as it is to show people that like, you can also write a song, you could also make a record, you could also do this. That's like really what I'm here to do is kind of sounds fucking lame, but like help people and inspire people is like what I get the most out of. So that's why I did that. That's cool. That makes a lot of sense. I actually was going to try to write some stuff live in front of Riff Hard, do these one-hour song experiments, and just to see, just I'll to see what that. happens. You want to do that? That'll be the thing yeah. we do. All right, let's do it. That would be cool as fuck. Because I've been doing these on my own recently. Mm. Getting to the end of writing the Doth record, I want to make sure that I'm not repeating myself. I feel like this is how I'm getting my tendencies, my stock bullshit out of the way by doing these one hour songs. Yeah, smart. Pave the way for like truly new ideas. And then actually there's some cool stuff in these one hour songs. Yeah, I always say that songs come in pairs. Like you always write the same kind of thing usually two times in a row. You're like finishing the essence of something you started in the other song. Like that always happens, like sister songs and then you could fucking move on. But smart, because otherwise you're like, that's a good idea, dude. I should be doing that in record writing sessions. Well, that's the thing. It's like, it doesn't have to be a great song if you're writing a one hour song, but yeah. you're doing it often. It's a good way to get your brain in songwriting mode and under pressure, but also outside of it having to be great, which I feel like sometimes it having to be great hurts it. And on the flip side of that, when you write something great in an hour, you now know confidently in yourself, you can write great shit in an hour. Yep. Forever. Yes. Whenever, forever. Yeah. That shit is huge, dude. That was a huge part of the record I was writing. The whole process of the record was, so Inside Out Part 1, I wrote that record in the six months leading up to my mom passing away. All the songs were about that. Then I sat on that record for a couple years before I could like finish it. In that time period, wrote a couple other songs. And those are songs that I brought back to life for this record. I took three songs from that after my mom passed away window and I breathe new life into them. And then I wrote three new ones from like now looking forward. So like, it's a little bit of looking back and looking forward at the same time. And because of that, every one of these songs that I was tapping into, it's this journaling process. And the thing that I do with my students and in these sessions is how often do we as musicians believe we need to have some traumatic life altering thing in order to have something worth a shit to say? Often. And it's the most detrimental thing to like our health, to our psyche, to our belief in what we fucking can do. And obviously having heavy things in your life is a great thing to pull on. But I was just talking to a buddy of mine yesterday who writes very emotional acoustic music. And he's like, dude, I don't think I have more records in me. Every time I write a song, I have to like tap into like deep traumas in my life that fuck me up. And I don't know if I can do this anymore. And it's just like, that's a crazy thought. So what I've trained myself and my students and anyone who's willing to listen in a single day, you have a whole entire fucking song, dude. Like when I woke up this morning, I was feeling a little bit of anxiousness for this right and then I was like you know what fuck that I'm gonna go on a nice walk with my dog and then it started to rain and I'm sitting there and I could either be pissed about the rain or I could love being rained on there's emotion in all of that there's storyline in all of that what does it feel like to walk into the sun and then start getting rained on what's like an emotion that that could feel like maybe like let down or like change that's too quick or something like any word right and then you start to go well what would that sound like in music and then all of a sudden you have a direction for your song It's in you. It just happens. What is more tangible than what I just lived today? So any day can be like the coolest fucking song is how I'm teaching it now and how I talk about it. So being able to tap into that 
without the requirement of who died is way easier. I think the requirement of who died is the same thing as the requirement of heroin. Yes. That's my other point. Exactly. Yes. That's what I told my student. I was like, it's like believing you need to be fucked up on heroin to make music. That's exactly what I told my student yesterday. That's so funny. Yeah, it's a fucking myth. That's not to say that trauma and drugs don't <laughs> help. <laughs> help. No, man, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, I don't know if it's correlation or causation, but there's a lot out there indicating that the artistic condition is coping from drugs and trauma. <laughs> yeah. Or the drugs are coping from trauma, which creates the music. So it's all coping from trauma. Totally dude. But the thing is, who is to judge what is worthy of being fuel for music outside of you? Right. Straight up. If it's pure and if it's of you and it happened, then it was the best thing and the only thing that should be there. Yeah, exactly. I wholeheartedly believe that shit, dude. I think some people try to have the trauma Olympics where some people who wish they went to the military are strangely jealous of people who did go and experience something horrific and have PTSD from it. I've met people who have this weird jealousy of it and feel like anything that goes wrong for them doesn't matter because they didn't experience that. And it's just a... Not true. This isn't to take anything away from anything that like, dude, I suffer from PTSD myself and it's not from military stuff. And I'm openly saying that right now, dude, I'm dealing with some wild ass shit. Fuck it. But like the notion of like PTSD causing anything in those people doesn't necessarily take away from the fact that that is an unbelievably inextricably connected thing to life. And it's like what we do with it that determines who you can be with it. So like whether whether or not that trauma is worth being like jealous of, which is a kind of weird, I can't even imagine someone who would feel that, but it's I guess weird. it lines up with the grass is greener, FOMO kind of concept and like- Imposter syndrome. But I also imagine the person on that side is going, bro, I wish I had a normal life where I didn't have to go to overseas and deal with this shit. Like it's always gonna be like that, right? So I think the important thing in recognizing that the artists that people love have found comfort in being themselves. And I found wholeness and not being anybody else. And I think that's what creates that authenticity that I was talking about at the beginning of this, like being there to pay homage or being there to just be yourself. That's what's tangible on the other side. And I think that, dude, the amount of band members that I've been in bands with who were there for the party and the pussy who aren't still in the career now is like 100% of them. The mission, the objective, the intention behind everything usually yields where people are. So I would say... To anyone dealing with any of that shit, PTSD stuff, trauma, I commend you. I empathize with you. Please try to find a way to use that darkness to create some form of light because other people can feed off of that and create more beautiful shit with it. But at the same time, if you have not gone through crazy shit, you don't need to go through crazy shit to be able to help people. Just sit down and write. Just sit down and write. Like you doing that is the service and you being at your computer to make the thing is you being in service to other humans. And that's what makes something pure. If you're there to serve your fucking wallet or like infuse your idea into this fucking, oh, I got to make sure that my idea gets in the session. Like you're not there to serve the song and the people listening to it. That's where shit gets twisted. It's a great way to put it. And I think this is a great way to uh, end the episode. Cool. I had no idea what I was saying that whole time. So I'm glad it made sense. No, it made perfect <laughs> sense. It was great. It was a perfect conclusion. Love it, dude. Thank you so much for coming on again. I love being here, man. Always a pleasure. I will be back whenever you want me, dude.